in worship through their giving. We often uh, have people give uh, when we pass the baskets or whatever, and uh, most of the time it's kind of secret, kind of hidden. But today we see as a body our chance to bring uh, the things that God has blessed us with to be a channel of blessing to others, and that's just a very good thing. Uh, If you didn't realize it, the offering is also in these baskets, so if you missed that opportunity, you can take advantage of that at the end of the service. Well, we are back in this uh, series in 2 Timothy, and it is both sweet and rich, this Word of God to us, very applicable to today. Um, I want to pray, and then I want us to start unpacking uh, this significant section. Father, I thank you for each one who's here this morning. I thank you that you motivated them to come, you brought them perhaps hungry, perhaps discouraged, wherever they came from, you brought them to this place. And I ask now, by your Spirit and by your Word, that you would feed our hearts on Christ. May we look to Him, fellowship with Him, and may our fellowship with each other be rich because of that. Would you open this Word to us, Father, this timeless Word, that our hearts can also know what direction we need to go. And I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's writing, and in essence, he's giving some advice. Now, I don't know how you are, but some people actually don't like advice very much. I mean, they're not really that encouraged when someone wants to give them advice. Um, You know, we pastors have people who are quite happy to give us advice. You know, I think if you do a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that, things would go better. And actually, we need the advice. It's just a matter of whether we like taking it or not. Now, if you picture a mom, and let's say she's dealing with her daughter at 7, at 9, maybe even at 11, and mom is really cool to that pre-adolescent girl, and she's saying, hey, here's what you should wear, this is what kids are wearing now, and you know, you're going to really get some positive attention if you do that, and this is what you should do with your hair, this is really, you know, all the kids are doing this, and I think it looks so good on you, and that'd be great, and that girl's really happy to get that advice at 7, and 9, and 11. Fast forward a little bit. Now we're 17, 19, 21. Mom still has advice about what that daughter should wear what she should do with her hair, and maybe some other things. But it's not always welcome advice, it turns out. And you say, what makes it, at one point you like getting advice, at another point you don't want to hear it? And there's a couple of key things. Uh, One is the fact that that advice comes through the strength of relationship. If somebody's giving you advice, but you don't think they have your best interest in mind, or they really are thinking of you, they're just kind of unloading what they want to unload, you don't really want that advice. Um, But if you have a strength of relationship, if you know that person cares for you and they know you and they have insight into your heart, mind, soul, and life, that's a different matter. So having that relationship makes taking advice easier. The other thing that makes it a bit easier is if you really respect that person. And if you know, wow, this person has lived it, this person knows what they're talking about. If the proof's in the pudding, they've proven that they have a right to give me this advice because their life matches up to what they're saying. And that's exactly the situation we see with Paul and Timothy. Paul had actually spent a lot of time with Timothy in very extreme circumstances. Timothy was aware of when Paul was abused and beaten and uh, imprisoned and all the hard things he went through for the gospel. And Timothy watched Paul's life and the way he dealt with people and the way he dealt with hardship and his confidence and connection with God. So when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and by the way, remember, it is his last will and testament, Paul's basically saying, you know, I'm about ready to go. My time is done. And so Timothy is in a very tender and dear way hearing from this mentor of his, what does he have to say to me? And in today's passage, we actually have three imperatives. Now, imperatives 
or even a little bit more than suggestions. Paul's basically telling Timothy what to do. And uh, in essence, this word from God, which was from the apostle to his mentee, is something that's also very much a word to us today. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Each of these verses has an imperative. Really important to understand where this one starts. Basically says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I get to wonder, you know, Timothy had already been kind of told about not being timid, already told to not be ashamed of the gospel. And you kind of wonder, is this getting annoying for Timothy? Because now Paul starts this section with, be strong. He had actually just gone through a section where he started telling Timothy, almost everybody's abandoned me. I'm here for the sake of the gospel and Christ, and people are turning away. Oh, there was this one guy. He stood with me. May God bless him, and may he know grace and mercy and peace. But it's really hard, Timothy, because these people are turning away. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of you, Timothy. I'm writing to you. Let my pen turn back to you. You, Timothy, be strong in the grace found in Christ. So was that annoying for Timothy? Was it difficult? Did he think, what do you think I am, a wimp here, Paul? I don't think that's the way this advice came through. I think Timothy wanted to finish faithfully. He wanted to please Paul more than that. He wanted to do what God had called him to do. And so I think this bit of advice was so grounding for him. Be strong. Now, uh, we're going to talk about being strong in grace, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. Because grace is not your effort. Grace is understanding you can't do it. It's not your own strength. It's not a do-it-yourself Christianity. Paul wasn't saying to Timothy, remember all the rituals I taught you and keep practicing them consistently and then things will go well. We are so uh, uh, much in danger at church of making things ritualistic. Or program-oriented and saying, if you'll just participate in the program, if you'll just do the deal, you'll be okay. But that's not where Paul's saying. He's be strong in grace. Grace is this thing that you didn't earn this. You're not getting what you deserve or earn from God. You're getting what this loving God likes to pour out because he's a gracious, giving God. Plug into that, Timothy. And you might say again, well, isn't that an oxymoron? How do you be strong? How do you do something about it? Do you just sit back? And wait for the grace to flow in? Well, interestingly enough, every one of us, let's be honest, every one of us is going to be strong in something. You're here this morning, and I bet there's something that your heart goes to regularly to try to make more significance of your life and give purpose and direction and encouragement and hope. And for many, it might be money or some kind of success People thinking well of you. It might just be popularity. It might be entertainment. It might just be really having a good time as often as you can and in as many repeated fashions as you can. But there's some place you're going to try to be strong. There's some place you're going for your identity and purpose in life. And Paul's telling Timothy, he's reminding him, and he's reminding us this morning, I'll tell you where to go. You want to be strong. Go to Christ. Go to His grace. Go to the fact that he's pouring out himself into your life. And that's where you can be rooted, Timothy. That's how you can maintain this thing we're asking you to maintain. That's the source of all good things in life. It's a wonderful word, and it's an important word for us. Be strong in grace. And it's so key that we understand grace, again, is not found in ritual, but found in a person. Grace is found in the person of Christ. Christ. 
think it's kind of, uh, I mean, actually crazy the way the Bible talks about how we relate to the God, the creator of the universe. Paul says, you know what? If you have uh, repented of your sins and turned in faith to Jesus and accepted his gift of life, you know what happens? He lives in you and you live in him. Isn't that just a little bit crazy? I mean, really, on a human level, what do we know that is like that? But you understand this is exactly what God has accomplished in the cross. We can actually have this connection with God so that we are one with Christ, which is what Christ prayed, that we would be one with him and the Father. And we can be where he is in heavenly places. And we can know no matter where we are, like when Paul was in that dungeon, he was not alone because Christ was with him. Jesus told his disciples, I know you guys are afraid, but you can't go anywhere that I will not be with you. That's the way this is going to be. We are connected. And so that's where Paul is starting as a foundation. Before he tells Timothy what else to do, he says, be strong in this grace. I will say, uh, you know, someone who's kind of interested in the direction of things church-wise, one of the sad things these days to me is how many young people are moving away from the church. And it could be that they think, well, actually, you know, the church is kind of wearing me out or They think they've got it together, but I see hypocrisy there. I see these things. I'm just not sure how that works. But in actual fact, I wonder, uh, they've got their own issues. We'll talk about that in a second. But I wonder how many times we've presented other things than the grace found in Christ. Come to church. Come to our programs. Be involved in the things we do. Do this and don't do that. And don't do that. Don't dress like that. That tattoo is not going to cut it. That big pierced ear that this guy had in the video? What's he going to do with that big hole in his ear? Do you have any idea? Those things don't grow back very well. In Africa, people get really big discs, and then some of them, when they get educated, some of them, when they come to faith, they take those discs out, but then they have to wrap their ear around the top because it doesn't heal back. So we can have all these things that can kind of complicate us and, again, um, make us think that's what people are turning their back from, all these do's and don'ts, and I have to look or dress or do whatever. Instead of saying, have people understood that we're inviting him to know Christ and be rooted in his grace? Do people get that? Do your kids get that? Do we share that openly? People coming to Christ Church, do they get that? That we got a lot of things going on. We, we have a wonderful set of musicians that lead us in worship. And it's great, isn't it? I thrill just being in here. It is a very cool thing. And we have a great facility, and we have all kinds of benefits at this church. But I, don't under, I mean, I do understand why people at some point are going to pull back and say, but I think I could even find something better to do, unless Jesus is in the middle of it. The thing I really love about Brad, besides the fact that he's such a gifted musician, is he has a heart to take you folks into the presence of God in worship. That's what makes this so sweet here in the morning. And you see, that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Be grounded, be strong in the grace found in God. And for any who are thinking of drifting away, wondering whether this church thing is working for you, I just cry out to you. If we have sent the wrong messages, it really is about Jesus. And there is nothing richer or better anywhere in the universe than Jesus. Knowing him, knowing his grace, knowing his mercy, knowing his love, knowing his presence in your life. 
And so Paul grounds Timothy right there. So when he starts saying what else to do, don't forget that he said, do it out of this life of grace and literally having Christ in you. But now he gets on to the strategy. We said we don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. We see the power of the gospel. So Jesus, who is going to do this whole revolutionary thing, he's got a strategy for changing the world. And we're about to hear that strategy. And actually, this strategy is a little bit at least corny, I think. And the things you have heard from me, verse 2, say in the presence of many witnesses, I'm sorry, uh, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Okay, are you following this strategy? So here's the strategy for revolutionizing the world by Jesus Christ. We're going to play the gossip game. I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to turn around and tell somebody else something, and then they're going to tell somebody else, and then they're going to tell somebody else, and then they're going to tell somebody else. Now, you know, we've done these games in school, and we know what typically happens with this, right? It doesn't work out. It will get so distorted so quickly. And... Um, you know, I, I don't remember when the last time you played that game. I was thinking of an example of this gossip game. We could start by whispering, the Mississippi is on fire. And I whisper it in this corner over here, and I tell one person, it goes all the way around the room. And about 30 minutes later, we say, well, what did you hear from what I said over here? And it might be something like, I think they said, Reese Witherspoon ate a tire. <laughs> and it's honestly, I mean, it would never get through this room, just this size, if I started here telling a story, getting it over here, it would never get through, would it? Whispering one to another. So how could this be the strategy to revolutionize the world? This message that I'm entrusting to you, this gospel, this good news about Jesus, entrust it to a reliable person who will entrust it to someone else. Well, God did a few tricks. For one... He made sure that what had happened, the truth, the essence of the gospel, got written down. You know what? That makes it a lot better. If I started over here and instead of whispering it, I gave him a note and said, now I want you to pass this note and have the person write it, but they can look at your copy when they write it. And the people that first got God's word, they understood, whoa, God has spoken. And so they were really, really careful to write down. If they wanted to make a copy for somebody else, they labored to make sure they wrote it down word for word. Not too many years ago, they found these extra older Bibles. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was kind of revolutionary because we found copies of scriptures that were over a thousand years old, kind of closed this gap. And we said, okay, now we know what we have now. Now we're going to figure out this gossip game. We're going to go back and see how different it was a thousand years ago. And then we'll know how often this message has changed, as all the skeptics say. And they studied, and they studied, and they studied. They said, my word. It's about 99.9% the same message. Nothing of any essence has been changed in over a thousand years. The gospel we have is a trustworthy message. Now, you have to understand, God has ordained that process. People that have understood it have given their lives to keep the word flowing to the next generation, to get it into the language of the people they cared about because they wanted them to hear and know the gospel too. We take it so glibly here because we have a stacks of Bibles, many of us, in different translations. We can download anything and we can have it on our laptop and on our phone. Whether we read it or not, it's another matter, but we have it all. And yet God basically has protected this wonderful gospel message by writing it down. Well, then another question might just be, yeah, but really, do you keep finding reliable people 
to share it with, and does it keep getting passed on? Remember, the church started in kind of a backwater place, nation of Israel, small, insignificant on the world history. Never a Greece, never a Rome, never any really vibrant, huge, world-controlling empire. Interesting that they're still in the news today, but that's a subject for another time. But the point of the matter is he started in his backwater place. And you know what? 2,000 years later, you guys woke up this morning. Do you know there are 2 billion people that are under the mantle of the name of Christ this morning? 2 billion. Probably a billion or so. No one knows but God. Probably a billion or so are true believers in the person and work of Christ. That's a pretty amazing record for something that started 2,000 years ago as a gossip game, isn't it? (coughs) And so what we see is the reason this thing is working is because God is in it. Jesus said, I will be in you, you will be in me, and we're going to proclaim this message. But I'm not going to come and do it myself. You're going to go and be my hands and feet and my mouth to proclaim this good message. But I'm going with you wherever you go. The Spirit's going to tell you what to say. This is the reason the gospel is going to carry forward. And oh, by the way, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I'm not messing around about that. And I'm going to claim people for myself from every tribe and tongue and nation. I'm not messing around about that either. And so this gospel is going to prevail. That's just the way it is. Because Jesus is in it. And so that's the methodology. That's kind of the best we got, actually. And it's God's plan and it's working. So what's that have to do with Christ Church? Well, interestingly enough, we have a history, and one of our hallmarks is this is a place where people have heard the gospel. A lot of people come to our church who've been in other churches that were not sharing or teaching or preaching the truth about who Christ was and what he did and what it means today. And I've heard a lot of testimonies. People have sat in my office. It's one of the fun things about my job. And tell their story about how they came to understand the gospel. And say, I don't know why someone didn't tell me this for 30 years, but I heard it when I came here to Christ Church. That's a great heritage. We have to be so careful to guard that and to keep passing it on. Keep this being a gospel-centered place that teaches the full truth of the life, death, resurrection of Christ and what it means. That's part of our history. But there's another part of this thing, and that is that It isn't just for us as a church to be a place that proclaims the gospel and say, well, you can bring somebody and they'll hear the gospel. That's actually fine. That's a very good thing to do. But also our job is to do like Timothy was supposed to do here. You share this message, you equip people so they can go and tell somebody else. So God's real strategy here in the North Hills, in this part of Pittsburgh, is that you get such a grasp on the gospel yourself that you're not just bringing people here to tell them, you're taking that gospel like seeds all over Pittsburgh. And those are living seeds of the living word of God that is alive with Christ himself. And you're putting those seeds out. And some of them are going to come to fruit. And there's going to be new life and regeneration and reconciliation because of that. And that's the plan of God. And you might think, oh boy, is this where you start feeling guilty if you haven't witnessed enough? I mean, have you been in church before and pastors have beat you up about this? I wonder. I just want to say, welcome to the adventure. Don't be left out. You know what? This is not a spectator sport. It's not just for pastors to do. Every one of you is deputized by the Spirit of God to be a witness to the truth of the gospel. And it's a privilege. Now, I understand if you're not celebrating the gospel, if you're not being strong in the grace that's found in Christ, you don't know what you want to give away. 
So it does start with that fresh falling of love with Christ. Or if you don't know Christ, coming to him yourself first. But once you know the love of Christ in your life and the forgiveness of your sins and that hope that you have in him, then understand what a privilege it is to be one of the people that gives it away. For a second, think about who told you the gospel? Where did you first come to hear about Jesus and his love for you, his dying for you, his life available to you? And can you be that person for somebody else? That's part of the methodology here. Well, so we know we're supposed to be grounded in grace. We know the strategy is to teach others who will teach others. And then this next verse, verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't actually how you win friends and influence people either. If Paul's trying to build a cause, why did he go negative here? I mean, why didn't he say, Oh, Timothy, remember how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Everything's going to work out great for you because you're a Christian. You're going to have the abundant life. We won't say what that is, but you're going to have it. That's not what Paul says. He says, Be strong in Christ Share this gospel, this treasure with others. And Timothy, buck up. Because things are going to get tough. Because you know why? Some people, maybe in your circle, many people are going to reject the gospel. And if you're the one bearing it, they might hit you when they're trying to reject Christ as well. And for Paul, I mean... Honestly, he's sitting in prison. He's taken the full brunt of people's rejection of Christ. So what's happening today? Well, if you think about, if you were a Christian today in Iraq, your life would be on the line for naming the name of Christ. You might go to your church, and your church might get blown up today. They've got to have guards there. They've got to have people being very careful in the community. Is it safe? It is not safe. If you lived in Pakistan, if you lived in Iran, if you lived in lots of parts of North Africa... Your life would be in danger for naming the name of Christ. You say, well, actually, though, that's over there. And for some of us, we seem so disconnected. We should actually pray and care for those brothers and sisters of ours. But what about us? Is there a price that we pay? Is there any need for us to endure for naming the name of Christ, for sharing that hope? I happen to know that there is. I know that basically, if you decide you're going to be open about your relationship with Christ, some of your own family members might reject you. They, they might. They might say, you know what, I'm not walking with you. I'm not agreeing with you. If you're going to be one of those people, you can go it alone. For many others, people at work, maybe friends. I think of, uh, again, our young adults in college life. What a mess of a place in terms of being tested where people will not support you if you name the name of Christ. And we need to stand with each other. That's why we all need fellowship and encouragement because we're going to get beat up out there if we're naming the name of Christ. Now, it seems like a lot of us have figured that out. Well, then the thing to do is don't name the name of Christ. Just go to work and be a good person and be nice to people. And maybe, you know, I mean, maybe they'll ask you sometime whether you go to church or something like that. But if they don't ask, I'm not telling, right? Because then I don't have to put up with the abuse. I don't have to have people angry at me. But basically what Paul's saying is, you live and proclaim the truth about who Jesus is, and then buck up when people give you a hard time about it. Endure hardship, Timothy. It's the plan of the gospel. And you know, the amazing thing is, the gospel, the church, has always flourished where there was persecution. 
You might be telling some coworker about your conviction about Christ, and they might be abusing you and ratting on you and making your life difficult. And you don't know how many people are watching that interaction to see if your relationship and your faith is real. And you don't know how God is working. It might be even that person that's giving you the hardest time. It might be in half a dozen others that are watching to see if it's real for you, this relationship you have with Christ. But I do know that there's a cost. And I guess, again, I feel as a church, and I'm speaking not just of our church, but sort of American church, I feel like we have a need to apologize almost to our congregants. Because we've painted the picture that it's all good. It is easy. Just follow Christ. Because you know what? We're afraid if we say it's going to be tough, people might not come. People might leave. People won't support the programs and keep the building full. Shame on us for doing that, really. We should be honest and say, you know what? If you're really going to be a follower of Christ, you're going to take some bumps. There could be a real cost. You could actually lose your job. Your family might be split over this thing. We should be honest with people because that's the truth. But if you don't have that form of Christianity, whatever else you have... This thing of, why well, I go to church, but otherwise I don't make too big a deal of this. You have a hobby. You don't have a hope. You got that? You might have a hobby. That, yeah, church is something I do, like I also like the bicycle. But that's not a living hope that you have grounded in the person and work of Christ. When you're grounded in the person and work of Christ, he consumes you. There's nothing you love better. There's nothing you want more of, and there's nothing more you want to share than that person of Christ. Well, Paul wraps this thing up with three examples of people. Um, it's kind of interesting. Verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crop. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. So here we have these three examples. Uh, We have the soldier, and the soldier does not get distracted because he wants to please his commanding officer. I didn't quite get through the uh, cafe this morning before someone reminded me, you know, I know what verse you're preaching on. You know what happened to one of our generals recently here in America? We have a general who got really distracted. And you can see the work of Satan distorting and destroying this guy's life and perhaps his family and other families and the mess that it's going to be. And this example was, hey, you know what? A military person is supposed to be so focused they don't get distracted. And that's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Don't let those things distract you because you want to please your commander. And then he says, look at the athlete. The athlete doesn't break the rules because he's so anxious to move the ball. I uh, know that this is a football day. I would have known it anyway, but your shirts help remind me of that. You know, I think it's kind of an interesting thing about the way they have this rule about receivers who catch a pass and have to get both feet down before they go out of bounds. I mean, they've turned that into an art form, haven't they? I mean, here you're running full speed. You've got to concentrate on catching the ball. You've got to have this amazing grip. But somehow you do this amazing thing where your legs go dead and they both drag across while you're going to fall flat on your face. And everybody cheers because if you don't get both feet down, you don't get the yardage. So it's counted out of bounds. And so they're so anxious to make that count, that they do this really crazy thing. And so they're playing, paying attention to the rules. They've adapted their behavior to the rules because they want to make an advance. And that's an example that Paul said, look at the athlete. They get serious about this, don't they? It's their passion. They'll do some things that are even pretty crazy in order to advance the ball. And that's what we're supposed to do. And then he used as his last example the farmer. 
He said, you know what, the farmer, he gets to eat first. The farmer grows that food, but who do you think gets the food first? And so he knows when he's doing all that work and the watering and the hoeing and the fertilizing and all the things that he does, he's thinking about some pretty happy meals come harvest time. And so there's a thing that links up these three things. The soldier who wants to please his commanding officer and the uh, athlete who wants to win the prize and the farmer who's looking forward to what they're going to get. And none of them are martyrs. None of them are just doing it to show that they love pain. They are enduring, like Timothy's supposed to, like we're supposed to, because, man, there's a great treasure there. And that's what we find, those of us who are followers of Christ. And the treasure isn't just heaven, though that's an enormously huge and wonderful thing. The treasure starts now in Christ Jesus. Paul said, you know what? I count everything as rubbish that I might know him. I put everything aside. I was a Jew. I was a Pharisee. I had all these advantages. I had prestige. I had social status. I trashed it. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And that's this example. So Paul, having lived that and known that, tells Timothy and tells us, what are you worrying about, thinking about, longing for this morning? Be strong in the grace that's found in Christ. Take this precious gospel And share it with someone who will share it with someone else. And be prepared to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for this invitation to live. Father, we so want to grow in our relationship with Christ. We want Christ to be celebrated here, experienced here, proclaimed here. Corporately and individually. And Lord, for each one who's here this morning, I ask that you would stir their hearts afresh with the richness we find in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would get excited. We have all kinds of things that can distract us as a church. Perhaps whether we like this or don't like that, and whether our friend comes or not, and so many things. But Father, I pray that we would get excited as a body about being those who carry the gospel, share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and see people come to life through the gospel. We make that our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.